Hey guys, it's Ollie from Rad Season. I'm excited to be joined today by action sports agent, extraordinaire, producer, entrepreneur, uh, Cersei Wallace. Cersei, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And you've just come back from Jackson. Uh, how, with everything going on, how, how are you feeling? Um, I'm feeling pretty good. I mean, it was definitely uh, an exciting adventure and I feel like my response has been a crowning achievement of my career, having been a snowboarder, you know, my, my whole life and being a part of, of something like this in kind of elevating the game has been incredibly rewarding not just professionally, but um, personally, I feel um, very enriched by the experience. Um, I will say uh, the, the response, I mean, we knew it would be good, but the response just was astounding. And I think, you know, this is now kind of the downside of success in that um, it's kind of all consuming because um, there's just so much interest. And now, you know, how do we up level what we just did is uh, an interesting challenge. Yeah. And how, how much preparation went into it? I mean, has this kind of been? Well, we've been working on this since 2008. So what's that, 13 years? Um, obviously we did the first natural selection in Jackson hole in 2008, and then we did supernatural and ultra natural, and we've done a a variety of, of renditions. Um, I think what's interesting about this is this one is that we really, um, have decided that this is, is a viable property and we are doing a global tour and, um, I think providing an alternative to what has been the degradation of competitive snowboarding. Mm-hmm. So um, it's it's been a long time in the making um, and working with Travis and Liam has certainly been uh, incredibly uh, intense, but also uh, kind of a dream team. Nice. And is there anything that you can sort of share with what you guys are working on for, for the, for, for the next two events? Is that something? Yeah. Yep. Yep. I'm happy to, to, um, discuss. I think, uh, obviously, uh, and I shouldn't say obviously because a lot of people might not know this, but Jackson hole was the only live event. So uh, we went live in Jackson. Um, That was for a variety of reasons, but primarily because, you know, we had a static venue, we had mountain ops, um, and the ability to essentially build a production facility um, on mountain. Yeah. Um, It gets a little more challenging when you get into, you know, Baldface, Valhalla territory, and Alaska. So um, both of those shows are essentially uh, Baldface is um, has had we've had to pivot pretty dramatically because of COVID. Yeah. So we're only um, able to have Canadian athletes present um, because of Canadian strict uh, regulations and to be compliant in COVID. We're not really even allowed to have an event. So we've kind of had to shift to a more uh, content driven initiative. 
Mm-hmm. So um, I, there's there's some information coming out in the in the next couple of days in terms of format, but essentially it's an opportunity for athletes to um, to create content and then ultimately will be judged on that content, which will uh, then will take one man, one woman from that event who win to Alaska. Okay. Nice. Well, it's amazing that you're still continuing, you know, keeping it going with, with everything that's happening. And yeah. Yeah. We, you guys for doing that. Yeah. We, you know, I mean, <laughs> I feel like the fact that we pulled off Jackson and, ev- you know, everyone tested negative, everyone was healthy in and out was a- an incredible feat. And the gods shined upon us because. Um, it was not, it was not easy and, and hats off to Liam, just even in dealing with like international travel waivers and, and getting everyone there was just yeah. an, an incredible feat. Um, and the fact that everyone stayed healthy, everyone walked away healthy. Um, I think just felt like that in itself was an incredible accomplishment. Um, and, you know, I think we, we've known all along that we were going to have to stay pretty nimble in how we approached uh, our international stop, given the, the times we, you know, we had, you know, some kind of uh, information that allowed us at least to have a, a comprehensive contingency plan, yeah. because that, that was the only way it was going to be effective. And I think we've done the best with what we've got. And, you know, Jeff at Baldface has really worked with us um, in helping find solutions. And, you know, that is, that is such an important venue for us. And, and we're very excited that we have found a solution to continue um, our objective of a three-stop tour. Nice. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, yeah. I, um, I guess I'd love to take it back um to the beginning and and how like how, how you got into action sports because you you grew up in in Oregon is that right I did I was uh born in Eugene and I was there till my teens and then I and then uh at 14 I moved to Seattle um and then I was there really until I moved here in my 20s so northwest kid for sure and and was it was it skateboarding that kind of yeah what, what you first got into? Yes, I um, I started skateboarding in middle school and had a group of friends, um, specifically uh, a girl, Anita Tessenson, and we were besties starting in middle school. She was a little bit older than me, um, and she was a gymnast who was tired of being a gymnast, and we both discovered skateboarding at the same time. Um, and at that time, you know, this was like the early eighties, um, skateboarding was, was kind of having its, um, its day. And so we really had a lot of freedom in Eugene. It was, you know, it's a small hippie college town. Mm -hmm. And so skateboarding was just our lives. Like if we weren't in school or even when we were in school, (laughs) <laughs> we were um, playing hooky and skating the streets of Eugene, which was really great because I'd kind of always been a little bit of an outlier um, socially. Like I was not, I didn't fit in kind of to the norm or the, you know, we we had the clicks then that was like the Wavos or the Soshis or the, um, 
the, the preppies, which were the Sochis. But um, I was kind of, uh, you know, a little bit of an outcast. And skateboarding was like this incredible community that we built in Eugene. And, and we would skate late into the night and really just fell in love. You know, there's like something like a, a switch that, that flips when you are a skater where like how you see the world changes yeah. in terms of like, you know, you, you'll see transitions or, you know, you'd see a curb or <laughs> it, it just totally changed my perception of the world. And, and certainly I think kind of set the table for the rest of my life. And, and did, uh, were, were you then looking at sort of different sports then as well that, were I guess sort of similar to the culture of skating so we like looking at things like surfing as well you know I I crushed on a surfer boy who had moved from Santa Cruz in high school my freshman year um and so you know I definitely there was you know there's always some crossover you know the Jimmy Z's ads or you know certain things that uh made you know board sports compelling and it was certainly the the entry point for me from a snowboarding perspective, like sideways mm-hmm. dance was definitely, you know, uh, f- from that point forward was, was what was interesting to me just, yeah. you know, f- from how you perceive the mountain or the streets, um, approaching it from a kind of transitional mindset was definitely, uh, I was drawn to that. I didn't start surfing until my twenties in the okay. North in Washington in Westport. Um, I was dating Jamie Lynn and my best friend at the time, Ingrid was like hell bent on learning how to surf. And I was not quite as interested because surfing Westport, Washington is kind of, um, intimidating to say the least. Uh, but she was just totally committed and inevitably Jamie, um, kind of went along for the ride. He had, uh, he had been surfing, you know, occasionally. And so started surfing up there. Um, but you know, I had already been snowboarding for quite a few years at that point. And then I moved to Southern California and, you know, surfing is, is a huge passion and, and something yeah. to do as, as often as possible. So, so when did you start snowboarding? Was that in high school or? 84. Okay. It was the first year I went snowboarding and um <clears throat> I had a friend in school, Sandy, who had a trust fund boyfriend named Thatcher, who had like a a cute Jetta, and they were into snowboarding and uh convinced me to come along to Hoodoo Mountain one day. And I took a pair of like men's work boots and put Air Jordans inside of them as my bladders. Um, I was on a, uh, a Burton Woody, the ones with the metal edges, just the little ones at the tail. Um, and the chairlift hit me in the back of the head, uh, on one of my first dismounts and I bit all the way through my tongue and I was just spitting blood, but having so much fun that, um, I continued to ride the rest of the day and that was it. I was in love. And and then did you sort of try and go like whenever you could, like yeah yeah. Uh, so Sandy and Thatcher would go pretty regularly. I remember driving in his Jetta, listening to Roxanne by the Police, and I have like really fond memories of just even you know. There's something about 
like the transition into the mountains too, that was really, you know, it was like getting into nature. I had been skateboarding and, you know, I'd had kind of a troubled youth. I, you know, I took a lot of drugs and a lot of psychedelics, which actually I think uh, were kind of expansive, to be honest, as it relates to snowboarding and and skateboarding just from per- perception right but mm-hmm. definitely was like looking for thrills and and pushing the edges i think in terms of um of what you know i liked getting out of my comfort zone i think i've always been a little bit of an adrenaline seeker and so i think uh snowboarding getting me into nature and the magical kind of transition that happens from, you know, even though Eugene is a a small, cute little town, you know, moving into the mountains and the expansiveness and and opportunity to, to be in nature, I think, uh, really resonated with me. And I kind of found solace in the thrill seeking in a much healthier environment, um, than I had traditionally. And I had grown up with pretty hippie parents who would camp all the time. Like camping was, you know, uh, every weekend, every opportunity we dropped, drove across country and camped the whole way a couple times. We drove in a little Datsun 510 and, you know, toured the nation really camping. And I, at, at about 14 was just like, you know, I'm done with camping. This is, I'm done with parents basically. And, you know, interestingly enough, I think I was rebelling against that, um, but it was within me, like the appreciation for for nature in a mm-hmm. way um, that I really did feel happy in in that environment. But snowboarding, it was, you know, it was a, a fusion of nature and adrenaline that yeah. that really was what really turned me on. I got to have my thrills and be in that magical environment with my friends. And that really worked for me. Nice one. And was there any, like, was, was there a point at the beginning where you thought, okay, you'd like to take this a little bit more seriously and when you thought that it, it could even become a career? Yeah. I mean, I think I always wanted to be a pro skater, right? And girls kind of are rarely included. Anita got sponsored by Powell. I was grounded and there was a contest in Eugene and Anita was a better skater than me. She had a gymnast background. So she was doing like ho-hos and kickflips like ages ago. I think she was probably one of the more progressive street skaters in the world uh, for her time. And I wasn't quite as good as her, but I had gotten grounded and couldn't go to a contest for some reason. I'm sure I did something bad. And she uh, got discovered by Powell, her and another local girl, Leaf. Um, got discovered by Powell and I missed out on that. And it was just utterly devastating to me. Um, And, you know, they were just on flow, but, you know, they got an ad and it was like, you know, kind of first generation female pro and Anita deserved it. Like there's no question in my mind that 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 was all very serendipitous. Um, But there wasn't a lot of opportunity for women in skateboard or girls in skateboarding you know, at that time and really not until recently with Olympic inclusion has, I think there been real opportunity to like make a living. Mm -hmm. Um, but I didn't really, 
I didn't really start thinking about snowboarding like competitively or as a path to a successful career until later. Um, and I think a lot of that was, I mean, it was just early, right? Yeah. Like nobody knew what it was going to be. And it fit, it fit my ethos because we were totally like anti-authority and we could still be, you know, punk kind of skate rats. And we had like the skiers to push up against. And, you know, there was still that like uh, angst and rebellion that I loved about skateboarding. Mm-hmm. But there was also a lot more opportunity. And um, I mean, how how were the challenges sort of going into? Because it was such a like like such a new time, right? I mean, dealing like dealing with the industry then. I mean, how how was that? I mean, it was like a fun little social club, you know. Like the industry was so nascent that it was. Um, it was like, I finally found my friend group, you know? Um, and it's interesting cause you know, I don't talk to anyone I went to high school with, but I talked to everyone I grew up snowboarding with, whether it's Jamie Lynn or Michelle Taggart or, you know, all of those, you know, original Ingrid Gunderson, who was my best friend, you know, all of those people are lifelong friends and relationships you know, Jason Fast, Jason Loeb, like all the Baker crew, um, Gillian Kelly, like that was my tribe. I had found home, yeah. you know? And um, so I think it was pretty organic in terms of, you know, then I just started doing the Northwest series, which was, you know, Bob Barcy of the bike factory. And then he sponsored me and it was like, you know, I would be one of, three or four girls at the Northwest series events. And I did well in those. And I got a little taste of, of winning. And I really liked that. I'm kind of inherently competitive. So I think that was, that was a a driving force for me that was reinforced by some, some small wins Mm -hmm. that then kind of set me on my trajectory. Nice. And I mean, this was all, so it, it, it was dur- during your twenties, right? That that was all kind of early twenties. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think I was like 18 or 19. I went to an alternative high school when I moved to Seattle. So I kind of got kicked out of my mom's house for being a brat uh, at 14 and went to go live with my dad in Seattle and lived in lower Queen Anne, which was right by Seattle center and was like a really fun and great place to be and was still skateboarding a bunch. Um, but snowboarding really took off for me there because of access to mountains. There's so much there. You can go to Snoqualmie or pack West for night skiing there, you know, Mount Baker really was, um, a little bit of a trek crystal mountain, but it was all right there. There was just so much access to diverse snowboarding. Um, I, I didn't really do well in, in school. And my freshman year, I went to Franklin high, which is like a real inner city Seattle school. Um, we were desegregated. So I actually took a bus into, uh, Mount Baker, which is where it is, where Franklin high was. And it was just a hard transition for me. I didn't really fit in. I, I was very uncomfortable, especially coming from like small town, Eugene and having my little skate click 
to this kind of more, uh, I don't know, urban and, uh, it was just a big high school. It was massive. And so I didn't really do very well there. And I, um, I wanted to drop out and my parents found me an alternative school called Summit K-12, which was a kindergarten through 12th grade alternative school. And I ended up there and they had a ski and they had a ski program. So every Friday during the winter, they literally filled up a school bus and took kindergartners through 12th graders skiing. And no one was snowboarding at that time, but I essentially wrote a program and submitted it, which would allow for me to get credit and to snowboard instead of ski. And I think they is an alternative school, right? Like they totally like nurtured uh, uh, ambition and, yeah you know, I took that initiative. And so they were very, very responsive. And so, uh, I would go ski with my school every Friday and I ended up graduating from summit K-12 a year early. Um, I took night classes, uh, with a graduating class of, I think 16 kids. Um, and I got like kind of a cool education in a very unorthodox environment. That's awesome. And and then when did sort of like sponsored like so then we 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 used to like seeking like sponsorship when we kind of oh yeah oh yeah I would send sponsor me letters to everyone and you know I was always I was never afraid to like ask to for attention so I was pretty prolific in my letter writing and uh and uh you know seeking opportunity mm-hmm. and and do you reckon that was sort of like with that confidence of of growing up and you know was that sort of coming from the school you reckon and like having that competitive sort of streak or I think I think I am just inherently ambitious and so that's just my constitution and I just found something to sink my teeth into that yeah. I really loved. And so I think that definitely was a foreshadow for my, my agent capabilities that yeah. I knew how to sell myself or I wasn't afraid to sell myself, I guess. Okay. And, and wasn't it so then what led you down to, to, to the agent path? Like we you, like didn't, didn't you have an injury in, in your, in your mid twenties and then that was kind of, yeah. So, I mean, fast forward, I was, I was on flow at one point I was on like pro form for Burton and then LibTech like sponsored me and, um, you know, Jamie and I were together at that time. Um, then I went to the ride team. It's funny. Cause I was just looking through a bunch of old stuff the other day and I was reading, like, I I'm kind of a little bit of a hoarder of my, of my past, you know, I kept every, you know, sponsor me letter or, uh, but I had written a letter to, uh, Tim and Steph Pogue, who were the original founders of the ride team. And, um, and I found this letter the other day and I, I, I it's fresh in my mind. So it w- was interesting. Cause even then I was like, you know, I had made a decision to go ride for the ride team. And that was hard because, um, I really liked Mervyn. They were, uh, you know, a Northwest. They weren't even Mervyn then. I don't think it was just Canoe and LibTech. Um, 
but they were a Northwest company and Pete and Mike were like family and, you know, it was a hard decision, but the ride team was like this totally progressive skateboard, you know, kind of mentality. And I really liked the team and there was just a lot of opportunity for me there. And I really meshed well with Tim and Steph, like they became like family. And so I was there for all of like the early days of ride and then the IPO and, Mm -hmm. Also, all of the challenges that inevitably come with, you know, a shift from a core brand to a publicly held uh, company with uh, accountability to shareholders and, and, and profit margins. And it really kind of fell apart. They brought in this awful CEO. I think his name was Bob Silver. Um, and anyway, it kind of just lost its soul and, and, and Tim and Steph you know, were the soul and heart of that brand. And so when it kind of fell apart, um, you know, I was still there. I had torn my ACL at Bear Mountain. I think it was like 91 or 92. Um, And they tried to terminate my contract. And I don't think that they did it because I was injured, but uh, they did it because uh, they were in the process of acquisition by K2. And so they were trying to, you know, eliminate liabilities. And so uh, I found a lawyer in Seattle. They uh, and I essentially sued them for wrongful termination. Mm-hmm. Um, it had to go to arbitration, but I found a lawyer who took me on a contingency who essentially made me write my own case. And through that process, I won an arbitration, but through that process, I really was inspired to uh, really, that was the the catalyst for my um, desire to become an agent. And that was because um, in my anti-authority uh, snowboarding experience, I also really always, you know, I had total lifty, I have lefty liberal parents. Um, I, I think I just was really, passionate about advocating for the little guy or girl. And once the big corporations started coming in, it just felt like a really natural place for me to continue to be that kind of angst filled advocate, but with like a place to put all that for good in in helping kids realize they're, you know, you're, you're all of a sudden you're, you're negotiating with, you know, Fortune 500 or, you know, multi-million dollar multinational corporations. And, you know, these kids, me included, were ill-equipped. Um, and so that's where I really felt like, oh, wow, this is something that will keep me in the industry. I can continue to participate in this community and this business that I'm so passionate about, but in a way that was kind of rebellious or pushing up against the corporates. Um, right. And yeah. 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 Nice. And, and sort of what was like, like, were you like, did, did you have any mentors back then or there was sort of people that, that were helping you or were you kind of, would you say you kind of just part of it, like not part of your own path? Yeah. Sort of when you became an agent. 
Yeah. I mean, I had, I mean, I would say Susan Fox, who was my lawyer at the time, you know, to see a woman lawyer who really like believed in me and trusted that even though I didn't, you know, I, I, I don't have an Ivy league education or, <clears throat> you know, there was something really validating about that experience that, and especially because I won, right. That, that, uh, I think just solidified my confidence in what was possible for me. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, certainly I've had, you know, lots of really great mentors, you know, Bob McKnight at Quicksilver has always been really great um, to me and incredibly available in, in ways. And I was like the first Roxy girl in North America. So um you know, Danny Kwok was there at the time and he was, he was very helpful. Um, you know, Tim and Steph definitely were huge for me at ride, um, and provided, uh, a real, um, opportunity for me to learn the business. And I had like carte blanche, like I could come in anytime. I, you know, in my letter that I found the other day, you know, I was like, I really want to be involved in research and development. And I want to learn, you know, I want to learn marketing and, you know, I was always really putting myself out there. Um, and so I think that that just served me well in, um, you know, pushing through the inevitable fear or, you know, am I good enough or, you know, what, what can I do? And I think my success in snowboarding as a nascent industry was so good because it made me feel confident that like you can do anything, right? And, and I think there's definitely some luck to that, right? Like from a timing perspective, like it's mm-hmm. not certainly not as easy for someone today, I think, to just to be there. Um, you had to be there, right? And I was there. But there was something about those successes in, in that experience that allowed me the confidence, I think, to be kind of entrepreneurial or not afraid of disrupt- disruptive opportunities um, because I didn't come from the status quo. Yeah, that makes sense. sense. Yeah. And so, so now like, I I guess sort of finding those letters and, and, and go like going back, I mean, are there any sort of moments that, that stand out um, as sort of like groundbreaking changes of, you know, I, I guess, I guess the past two decades of, of being an agent. I mean, is there anything that you sort of feel that, you know, that that was something that you feel really proud of, or I'm, I'm sure there's a number of things, but. Oh yeah, I mean, I have a lot. Like, if I really like dig deep, like, what are the things that I'm the most proud of? Um, you know, outside of essentially developing, you know, participating in the development of a new industry from its inception. Really, I mean, obviously you know, I'm almost 50. So, you know, 84 was pretty early. I wasn't one of the originals, but I'm pretty close. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that <clears throat> helping athletes like Tor Bright and Travis Rice and Paul Rodriguez, all of whom, you know, I've worked with for 18 years. Um, those feel like my greatest achievements in, 
those relationships and participating in their success in meaningful ways, mm-hmm. having lifelong relationships with these humans, like they are their family and yeah. I love them. And it's all an expansion of just, you know, our respective experiences, but I've somehow been able to meld business and family in a very unique way that has just been incredibly enriching. Um, and, um, I am perpetually in a state of gratitude for, um, the opportunities that I have had to not only, you know, work with incredible talents, but also really meaningfully contribute to their success. Yeah. And, and do you reckon because it sort of felt like family and there was this like strong connection with these, with, with these people, I mean, is that something that we think like why it worked and why, it was successful, you know, for, for, for both parties or for everyone involved. Really. Oh yeah. I mean, I really, I have a very clear understanding of what it takes to be successful in a agent client relationship. And it's a very mutual dance. Like the athlete has to want it really bad and they have to want it for themselves, mm-hmm. not for a parent or a familial member or for money it has to be because it's something that they will pursue with almost a reckless abandon. Yeah. And um, a level of trust, and that takes time, but, uh, you know, there's been so many instances with athletes who, like, always expect the agent to solve all of their problems. And the athletes that are the most successful, and I'm not saying that just in terms of like competitive results, but when I say successful, I mean like well-rounded, like happy, high-functioning, emotionally intelligent beings. You have to, it takes time, right? And I think the reason that I have been successful specifically with you know, the Olympians, whether that be Toro or Yuri, um, or now Jagger and Deshaun and Himana, you know, like it takes years and years of work for both of us to maximize, uh, the opportunity. And when there's a balance of respect and inherent trust, um, great things happen. Um, if you expect, if you, if there's a lack of accountability or you're projecting or the only way you're happy is if you're winning or you're not willing to like evolve kind of spiritually, mentally, physically, you have to like hit all three of those, I think to be truly a successful human. Um, and I have just been very lucky in one, I think those archetypes have been drawn to me as a representative for them. And two, we've stuck it out for, for a long time. And I've had the opportunity to prove to them um, what I'm capable of. Mm -hmm. And they clearly have shown what they're capable of. And that is just like a a beautiful combination. Yeah. 
And would you say, like, is there anything in your role as an agent that that's changed sort of drastically from from those like pioneering days when you when you started to to um to, to I guess now with with new sports being included in, into the Olympics and I mean I would say you know I am with Wasserman I'm with a, a one of the best and biggest sports agencies in the world and I think in terms of resources and support and mm-hmm. uh, you know sophistication as it relates to business my my own business acumen that's developed um, my Rolodex has has developed. Like I would say in, in a lot of ways that's gotten easier um, just because, you know, you establish a reputation, you know, I have the benefit of being part of a large and respectable organization. Um, So I I certainly think there's a level of sophistication that has developed personally and professionally that makes things easier. Um, Also, you know, I'm not as, uh, I don't have as much anxiety, you know, I'm not the same, I don't have the same level. Like I put my time in, right. So I approach things at a more mature pace and perspective Mm -hmm. that has made, uh, I would say the job more pleasant. Yeah. And I mean, like with all the with all the things that that you've been doing within Wiseman and for, for for all the athletes, I guess that sort of ties in with the entrepreneurial um, projects as well, right? Because it's sort of you know juggling um, ha- having your own business and so and and sort of doing all the, all, all these different different areas and, and wearing multiple hats. Um, I mean, so you you, you started Hot Knife. Um, what, um, a couple of years ago, like what, what was, uh, what, like, what was the reason behind that? Did you just, you thought like, you know, you wanted to do something else and what, like combine, combine things or, um, you know, I think it was a few things. I think first and foremost, I have an entrepreneurial spirit. Like I constantly want to be growing in terms of my, you know, I want to squeeze every last drop out of my experience as a business person. Mm-hmm. And the only way to do that, you know, I've been a man, I've been an agent for what, 20 plus years now. So the only way for me to like get the thrill, the excitement of, you know, I'm still a risk taker. There is, that is inherent. And I always want to be able to push the limits of my capabilities and I want to be learning and expanding my experience. And I chose cannabis because one, I believe in the medicine. I am kind of inherently anti big pharma you know, you know, once again, we go back to my kind of rebellious, uh, my inherent rebellion and desire to push the limits um, as it relates to status quo. Um, I am also incredibly progressive in my political position. Mm-hmm. And I believe that um, cannabis has been demonized 
you know, for a century and, you know, it disproportionately affects black and brown people and, you know, all ties up to up into, you know, the industrial military prison complex. And I was very excited about um, finding a way for me to marry my entrepreneurial or kind of capitalist uh, pursuits with something that I really believed in from an ethos perspective and could challenge maybe some of the industrial military complex in a way that also is proven in its benefits um, for health and wellness Mm -hmm. um, and challenge that also through a uh, a business that would or could be profitable and and once again kind of tearing down you know some of the the structures that I think don't serve the general good. Nice. Do you you see a lot of similarities between, you know, when you were starting off snowboarding and I, I guess with, with, with the new industry involving, um, yeah. Is there, is there kind of things that you've sort of. There's definitely parallel. Yeah. There's definitely parallels. I think, I mean, cannabis is an absolute shit show, especially in California. Um, and I think it will continue to be until we see, you know, at least uh, some state regulatory autonomy mm-hmm. um, and a move towards federal, at least deregulation, or I'm sorry, or uh, criminalization, uh, decriminalization. Um, I think that it's going to take time, but I really do believe that brands will be very important. I don't think we're there yet. And I Mm -hmm. think it's just really messy and trying to, you know, to work in a, in a regulated substance that is not federally legal. There are just so many challenges right now, but I think we're moving very quickly towards some solutions. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the greatest part for me about my hot knife experience, which will continue to be a priority for me is that I have like five years frontline California cannabis experience. And when I set the intention for growth, expansion, education, you know, all of those things that I want out of, out of my business life, that has delivered tenfold. Mm-hmm. Um, it hasn't been easy. It's been incredibly uncomfortable at times. Um, but I also have a very clear idea of what the potential is and I'm very confident in its ultimate success. It's just a lot harder. It's like one of those things, like if I'd known how hard it was, maybe I wouldn't have done it. So thank God I didn't. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's, it's provided I think, you know, it's funny because I'll like look at like what is my personal mission and 
you know, Hot Knife has provided a lot of that discomfort, but also education that I was looking for. And are you, from a, from a business perspective, are you looking to kind of grow it organically or, or will you like when the time yeah. comes then kind of I think, look at you know, funding? And... Yeah, well, we're very focused on the California market. Um, we are in a uh, an interesting kind of holding pattern just because of COVID and, mm-hmm. you know, the ever-changing market landscape. It's It's actually been a good time to hit pause. Um, we are going to launch hot knife 2.0 in the coming months. Um, there is a lot more interest. And I think once now that we have a friendly cannabis administration or friendlier, let's say, um, I think the opportunities are going to, are going to present themselves in ways, um, that they just couldn't ever in a, you know, when you're a scheduled one drug, yeah. You just you, there's just so many limitations and um you know I've kind of sat back and watched a lot of the other California baby brands just burn cash and capital trying to keep up and so we're kind of in a reflection period and working on our launch strategy um and I'm very excited about you know I I guarantee you Hot Knife will be a national brand in 5 years and we're going to do all kinds of fun stuff in action sports. Awesome. Um, with all that going on, I mean, you, you, uh, what, what else are you, so like, what are you focusing on this year uh, in, in regards to sort of athlete management and the business? Well, uh, collection is definitely uh, a huge priority. Mm-hmm. Um, the juggernaut that I think it, it ultimately could become. And I'm just so personally invested and passionate. Um, Obviously Travis has been my client for a really long time and I'm just having so much fun working with him and kind of defining his legacy in a way that's really meaningful and gives back. I think if you look at a lot of Travis's contemporaries, they haven't left anything behind. It's all been, you know, all consuming self-serving And I just really, really appreciate how important it is for Travis that he leave a lasting legacy Mm -hmm. as a snowboarder to his community and his people. And if you were at natural selection, like the level of love and camaraderie, I mean, you know, I cried at least once every day the whole time I was there because it was just, I was so moved by how beautiful our community is. It is it is truly an exceptional tribe. And so that obviously is, is not only a professional project, but a passion project. Mm-hmm. Um, Tokyo Olympics is a big one. I, there's just so many unknowns. I mean, all of us living through a COVID experience and national, a global pandemic has it's unprecedented, right? We're all, yeah. we're all doing our best. And, you know, I have three, men on the U.S. national team for skateboarding and managing that has been incredibly challenging because there's just so many unknowns. We still don't have a clear criteria for qualification. We have no idea what it's going to look like. And, you know, these kids are in their 20s and have worked for the last 
10, 15 years, literally. I mean, I signed Jagger when he was eight. He's 20. Uh, this is their life goal. And yeah. that's been tough. And I'm so amazed and impressed by their resilience. And um, I really appreciate kind of how dynamic it all is. And I just hope that we can have a good games. Yeah. I, I, I certainly want uh, skateboarding to have uh, quality representation. I think it's, you know, as part of my archives the other day, I also found an entire three ring binder of, or um, spiral notebook, spiral notebook of all the reasons why I didn't like, snowboarding in the olympics um but my perspective has changed pretty dramatically um and and not that i think skateboarding is is perfect for the olympics but i've seen what it can do mm -hmm. and i think it is so it has been so important for women like it has changed the yeah. game for women in skateboarding in a really meaningful way and i think that that is incredibly exciting um and so I think, you know, and, and from a business opportunity perspective, regardless of all the bureaucracy, it's, um, it's an exciting time. And, um, you know, nobody wanted snowboarding in the Olympics. Now it's, you know, probably 40% of, of winter's viewership. So take that, right? And Do you think the same thing will happen with skateboarding and surfing? Is that sort of... Maybe not the first games, but sort of like the longevity and. I mean, I think I think any of it is good. Let's just say that. Yeah. I think that ultimately, anything to bring greater exposure and opportunity, especially to inner city kids, is you know a, a positive opportunity and outlet, low barrier cost to entry. Um, a lot of accessibility and yeah. community. I think, you know, it's so funny because, you know, skateboarding is always, you know, we're always looked at as, as kind of the ruffians, um, the little skate rats, but ultimately like the skateboarding community is, is, it is so culturally diverse and there is so much positivity within the community amongst them, the kids. Yeah. I think that in that regard, uh, it's really important. I think it's also incredibly opportunistic for countries like Brazil or Japan who are really uh, at the forefront of progressiveness mm -hmm. um, is uh, it's, it's just a, 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 an incredibly dynamic and exciting time for skateboarding. And as much as, there, you know, it, it's fine because the core skaters or the or whatever, you know, the traditional, you know, archetype of the non-competitive skateboarder will continue to have plenty of opportunity with brands. Yeah. This this will not cannibalize that for any of them. And it will only create more opportunity for more kids. And I think that is an exciting development. Yeah. No, it sure is. And um, with with all that going on, I mean, you're, you've also got a you're doing a sports management 
um, course yes. as well, right? Yeah. Yes. So um, I am doing an online course uh, with my collaborator, Sue Izzo, who is a former agent um, and has worked with uh, many athletes in her own right. And we are doing a sports management mastermind. You can find it online, just www.sportsmanagementmastermind. Um, we're doing two free uh, live courses, 90 minutes, and then we're going to do a four or five week intensive. And it's basically, you know, the, the catalyst for that for us was really how can we take all of the experience that we have and share that in a meaningful way that will help parents and kids um, set the table for their professional careers if they so choose. And I have a 19-year-old daughter who is a freshman playing soccer starting at University of Arizona. Um, And so I have quite a bit of a balanced experience, not only in action sports, but also collegiate um, as a mother and as uh, Ava, my daughter probably doesn't know this yet, but I'm definitely going to be her agent. And, um, I, I, I think, you know, it's like, what is my why at 49? Like what is important to me? What gives me joy? Where do I find joy in the work? And, and so much of that is about like sharing or empowering my clients. Um, so that by the time we're done with their athletic careers or as their representative, they have learned enough to be empowered, to be good business people and to be happy functioning, um, you know, humans. And so this is really my way of continuing that in sharing all of the information. And I think it will also be a really great recruiting tool. Um, Wasserman is, is obviously my primary um, role and responsibility but finding ways for me to share information that will help, especially parents or young athletes, um, identify what is important for success is, mm-hmm. um, is, is personally really important to me. And this is a way for me able to share that in a meaningful way. Nice. Yeah. Cool. And what, if people want to reach out to you, what, what's the best way of getting in contact? Oh, uh, well, they can DM me on Instagram. I'm Circe Snow, C-I-R-C-E-S-N-O-W. I'm also on LinkedIn, Circe Wallace. Um, And, I mean, you can email me, cwallace at teamwass, T-E-A-M-W-A-S-S dot com. Nice. Cool, Circe, thanks so much for your time. Really looking forward to seeing what you're going to be up to uh, for, for the rest of the years, uh, specifically for, for for natural selection, and yeah, can't Thank wait to be watching you. that. And yeah, yeah thanks. thanks a lot. It was truly my pleasure. Thank you. I love uh, going down memory lane. <laughs> cool. Thanks, Susie. Okay. Bye. Cheers.